So I don't know if you saw the sign on the way in or you saw it on uh, Facebook or Instagram yesterday. This message is called Glimpsing Our Core from Luke 24 because it rhymes. But before we get into it, I'm just going to pray. God, I just thank you so much for this day, for Easter, for what it reminds us of, for what we look back to and what we look forward to on this day. Thank you that you came, that you died, that you paid the price for our sin and that you rose from the dead. And thank you so much, Jesus, for what that means for us, for what it means for our lives, for what it means for this city and for this country. And I pray, Lord, that more and more people would look into what Christianity is really about, excuse me, about how logical it is, about how it works together, and not just believe things they read, um, blog posts and opinions and what's on social media and sound bites that say things like, you know, Jesus' tomb found, which you know, there's a lot of people called Yeshua in Jesus' time, Lord, and they don't look at it, they just see that title and they're, that's it. And Lord, we just pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in the hearts and lives of us here as we listen to your word mm -hmm. and in the lives of people in Limerick as well and in Ireland that you would just be on the move, Lord, that you would be saving people because we know that your will is that nobody would perish. Mm -hmm. Amen. So today we're going to look at that first Easter, but it's going to be a little later in the evening than you might have expected. Normally on Easter Sunday, we talk about the women going to the tomb, the stone being rolled away, the tomb being empty, the angels coming, um, the angels telling them that Jesus is alive, Probably Mary seeing Jesus, maybe going to Peter, and Peter and John running to the tomb and seeing it empty. But in saying we're going to move past that bit of the story to the next bit of the story, I don't want you to think that I'm saying that the resurrection of Christ is not important. It is really important. It's the cornerstone of the cornerstone of the Christian faith. I learned recently that if you lose your big toe, you lose your balance. And so the resurrection of Jesus is a bit like your big toe. Without it, the Christian faith would just crumble. So, although we're not going to talk directly about the resurrection, it's not that it's not important. It is the key to Christianity. I think a lot of churches have different opinions maybe about what the key to Christianity is. Some would say maybe it's living a moral life, having, doing to others as you would have them do to you. Maybe it's a list of things that God told us not to do, or a list of things God told us to do. They might say that's the key to Christianity. Maybe the key to Christianity for some churches is the community of Christians together. But none of those things are what the Bible tells us the key to Christianity is. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 13 to 18, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he would not have raised if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So the resurrection is vital. Don't think, again, that I'm not doing the traditional story on Easter Sunday, that I'm saying it's not important. 
because it's the very opposite. So, the story that I want to use is a little later on. We've already kind of looked at the context of it. The resurrection of Christ, Jesus' death on the cross, burial, his resurrection. People coming to the tomb, hearing this testimony of the angels that he's risen, Mary seeing him and then going telling Peter that he's alive. And what we're going to later on in the day. So we're going to read from verse 13 of Luke chapter 24 to verse 35. And it says, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of our women of our company, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said, what they did not see, what him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So the story opens with that very day. Luke is making sure that we know that the story follows what took place previously to it. But it's the same day that Jesus rose from the dead. And we find the two disciples, Cleopas and maybe Simon, because it says that the Lord appeared to Simon there later on, um, on their way to Emmaus from Jerusalem. It's hard to know why exactly they were going to Emmaus but maybe this is just me guessing it was as close as they could get to stay in Jerusalem because at the time of Pentecost or Passover sorry which was an eight day festival 
um, that began the day Jesus died, the population of Jerusalem went from about 300,000 <coughs> to somewhere between 2 and 3 million. So that's a big chunk in the amount of people. The surrounding towns, of course, would have to host all of those people as well as Jerusalem because they would not fit. And we know Jesus himself commuted in and out of Jerusalem in the last week of his life from a town outside called Bethany. So we can't know if that's the case, but it seems likely. I've heard it said that they were running from Jerusalem before, um, out of fear that they might also be killed, like Jesus was. But I don't think from the... If you read it, they sound, they sound more like they're on a stroll than they're on a run. And they left, leave a stranger join them, somebody they don't recognise join them, which, if you're running for your life, you're probably not going to have a stranger come up to you and let them join your party. Um, I don't think so anyway. But as they're walking, they're joined by Jesus, who they don't recognise, either because he looks different in his glorified body, or because they have a spiritual kind of blindness on them that they can't see him, or maybe even just because of grief, but they can't recognise him wherever it is. Jesus comes up to them and he asks what the topic of conversation is, and I really love Cleopas's answer, because I don't think all 2.7, let's say, roughly, million people in Jerusalem probably followed the story of Jesus very, very closely. Uh, they might have known about him on Good Friday, when he was before the people and they were shouting to have him crucified. But it's been a few days now. The big massive event of Passover has been happening, which would probably divert their attention. And Cleopas is still like, oh yeah, no, do you not know? How do you not know? He reminds me of somebody who's like a fanatic about like a sports team or you know, a TV show that's coming back after its hiatus. Or... Um, somebody who really loves steps because steps are coming to Limerick soon. <laughs> and he's like, how do you not know? Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem that doesn't know what's been going on here? I think Jesus' answer is great. If you don't think Jesus has a sense of humor, just see what he says. He goes, what things? As if he doesn't know. As if he didn't have a front row seat to all of this. It would be like two people standing out in Limerick somewhere talking about steps and one of the members of steps comes up and asks them what they're talking about. And they're saying steps are coming to Limerick. Jesus lived this. He had front row seats to these events. He was there for all of it. Yet he asks them, what things? I think then you see in their answer the truth of what they were actually thinking. They didn't really expect this stranger to know what was it all going on because they give him a whole big long list of everything that happened over the past few days. They go through it piece by piece. And we've gone through it already, so we won't go through it again. But it's enough to note that they had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah but they had a wrong idea of what the Messiah would be. And so they were broken by his death. They don't really seem to believe the account of the women and the disciples that were there that said they saw the angels or that they saw Jesus. For today, as we launch out into what is quickly becoming a post-Christian Ireland, it's important to realise that many people that we meet have the wrong idea about God. 
people have an image of him in their minds and they reject that image. But to be honest, I would reject many of their images of God too. They see God as a harsh old man with a beard, a guy who sits in heaven waiting to punish people like the guy with the magnifying glass and the anthill. He's waiting for somebody to step out of the line and then he'll stop him and zap him. The guy who promotes maybe pain and suffering or abuse of children, if you're thinking of the Catholic Church. Unlike Cleopas and the other disciples, they're thinking all the wrong things about God. And if you start with the wrong idea about God, practically you will end up in the wrong places. A.W. Tozer said that the most important thing about each of us is what we think about God. And so we have hit on what will be a core of Calvary Limerick. We want to be a church that knows God. And that's why the tagline of the church, which comes from the community groups in Calvary Hork, is living together before the face of God. Knowing who God is, is more than head knowledge. But one of our main sources for learning about God is what he's revealed to us in his word. In the Bible. We aim to know God by knowing his word, but also by knowing his spirit. God has given us the Holy Spirit when we repented and believed in Jesus and start following him as our Lord. And he can speak to us and through us. And so we can know God by knowing the word and the spirit. Let's go back to Luke chapter 24. In verse 25, Jesus speaks. When I was very young, I mistakenly believed that because Irish people spoke English, it must mean that English people spoke Irish. So I was pretty shocked when I was told by an English... I told an English person, actually, that their English was good. I'm sure they were insulted and probably surprised by (laughs) a young guy saying... I'd say I was probably six or seven... um, telling them their English was good. Then I tried to speak Irish to them, the little bit of Irish that I knew at the time, and they had no idea what was going on. So I heard it right out of the horse's mouth, as they say, English people don't speak Irish. We have a similar situation here. Cleopas has explained the story of Jesus to Jesus, but Cleopas, who's explaining the story, still doesn't quite get it. He doesn't quite believe. And Jesus says... O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, probably for the remainder of the seven-mile journey, the greatest Bible study ever unfolds. Jesus himself explains to the two disciples how the entire Bible is all about him. In Revelation 19, verse 10, John falls on his face, and almost worships an angel that's showing him a vision of things to come. But the angel stops him. And part of the response of the angel to John as to why he shouldn't worship him is he says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of all prophecy. In, the other word, in other words, all prophecy has one subject, whether the prophecy is found in the Old Testament, the New Testament, or today. And that's Jesus. So Jesus went and told them how the entire Old Testament is all about him. And that's the second Calvary Limerick core. The entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation is about Jesus. 
So we want to be a church that knows God more. And here's a great way to do it. Following Jesus' example, we'll go through the Bible, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, seeing how it's all about Jesus. And in simply teaching the Bible simply, I don't even dream that I will do, or any other speaker who will ever be here will do, as good a job as Jesus did here. And it's not recorded for us. <laughs> but Jesus... As he's walking, he does this great Bible study with these two bewildered and bemuddled disciples. We'll go through the Bible, we'll seek Jesus out, and we will find him because it's all about him. So Calvary Limerick will be a church that seeks to know God, but will be a church that recognizes and holds Christ as preeminent. That just means that he will be first. He is the author, he is the subject of the Bible, and he will be the subject of our lives as we live together before the face of God. So they come to their departure point, the divergence in the road, and Jesus looks as if he's going to continue on. But they point out that it's late, the sun is setting, the road will probably not be very safe for a traveller by himself. And they invite him to spend time, spend the night in their place, come with them and have a meal. They had in their time a culture of hospitality where they would do those kind of things. But even if that wasn't there, could you imagine if somebody came... You thought they were a stranger and they explained your entire faith to you, how the whole Bible was about Jesus. Um, I think you'd be inviting them for dinner too. <laughs> I definitely would. I'm sad that the study is not in there for us to read. So they sit down for a meal and Jesus is the one who breaks the bread. And then verse 31 tells us that as they saw him break the bread, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. It's just an amazing, I think to me it's amazing that at this point, it's the point that they're allowed to see who he is, that the like, spiritual blindness that they had is taken away or they see through their grief. I don't know if they were at the Last Supper, either of them, or if they just heard about it, but Jesus broke bread there too. In Luke chapter 22, just back a page, in verses 19 to 20 it says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And give it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It was that point that he instituted or started the new covenant. And in the new covenant era, that's what we live in now. He would later meet those requirements in his death on the cross and in his resurrection. A covenant is an agreement. Under the old covenant, which is what the Old Testament is about, God made certain promises and people made certain promises. In the sign of the covenant, one of them was the law of Moses, most famously the Ten Commandments. God promised that he would be the God of the people of Israel and any who chose to join Israel if they would keep his commands. But there's a big problem with that covenant, and God knew it. The problem is on that it relied in part on the faithfulness of man, of people. We're not faithful. We can try to keep commands, but we just can't manage it. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, later on from this said, For whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. And that's in chapter 2, verse 10. And that's bad news for us. Because the Bible also tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23. That's the situation we're born into. 
But God didn't leave it that way. God is willing that no one would perish. So he made a way. And that's what Easter celebrates. Jesus instituted this new covenant based not on our faithfulness, but based on his grace. And he died on the cross to fulfill the requirements of that covenant, to make a way for us, we who cannot keep the law, to become sons and daughters of God. Now we live under grace and not under law. So here's the next Calvary Limerick core. We're going to be a grace-focused church. Calvary Chapel as a whole is big on grace. Chuck Smith, who founded the Calvary Chapel Movement of Churches, he said, Grace is the basis of your new relationship with God, and sin does not and cannot have dominion over you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Grace is simply God's unmerited favour or God's riches at Christ's expense. It's how we relate to God now. You can choose if you want to relate to God based on your merit, on your good deeds, how good you are, what you've done to help people, how obedient you are. But if you do, you'll find yourself in a place beyond hope. God is not interested in legal relationships with us. He's interested in a loving relationship with us. And we enter into that relationship and we stay in that relationship by his grace. Grace is about more than our salvation. We limit God if we say grace only brings us into his kingdom. We also glorify ourselves over him if we think that we can live out the Christian life in our own strength, relying on our own deeds. Galatians chapter 3 verse 3 says, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Or in other words, are you so foolish as to think that you begin by grace but you can be perfected by your own work. In 1 Peter 1.13, the Apostle Peter wrote, There, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our minds, our hope, are to be fully set on God's grace. And that is what we hope to do here as a church. As we get to know God more, as we seek Christ in all of scripture and in every moment of our lives, as we focus on him and his grace, we will begin truly to live together before the face of God. So we'll set our hope on God's grace and that should never change here. We want to have a doctrine of grace leading to a culture of grace that brings about a lifestyle of grace. That's what living together before the face of God means. Culture of grace means realising that none of us is the hero of the story. Jesus is. And with him being the focus of our life and our church and our interactions with one another, we can show grace to each other. And that culture of grace can really change our lives because grace teaches us two things at the same time. The first is that we're really bad and we can do nothing to save ourselves. And the second is that we are really loved that God would offer such a gift to us so freely. And then this lifestyle of grace will mean that we're not moulded into a shape the world wants us to be, but we will follow the pattern of God for our lives. Before we go back to the text, just a quick note on the breaking of bread. That is something we're going to do as often as we meet together. The breaking of bread or communion, we have crackers, it is a family meal. It was as has been said, the beginning point, the institution of the covenant of grace. So we want to doubly celebrate it. 
First, because Jesus told us to. And second, because it celebrates his grace in our lives. So in a few minutes, we're going to respond to God for all he's done for us, for what Easter reminds us of. And we're going to sing to him, we're going to pray, we're going to give him thanks, and we're going to take communion. So it's down there, and as Katrina and John play two more songs, you can just make your way down and take it in your own time, spend some time with God, um, pray to him, thank him for what he has done. So we invite you, if you know and you love Jesus as Lord and Saviour, if that covenant of grace is something you have grasped and seen in your life, to be real. To just go there in the last few songs and take some time with God. But that's in a few more minutes. We've seen from the text that Calvary Limerick's cores are going to be knowing God, the importance of Christ, the way the Bible will be taught, and the covenant of grace. And we have two more short ones, but vital ones, to go. So back in Luke 24. After Jesus breaks bread with the two disciples, he disappears. But what do the two disciples do? They don't sit down and finish their meal. It says in the very same hour, they get up and they run the seven miles back to Jerusalem. And they find the other disciples. And it says in 33 and 34... They rose in the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. So this is where I get the idea that the second guy is called Simon. Either that or Jesus has appeared to another Simon that's not recorded for us. Um, But it could be Simon and Cleopas. And Cleopas is saying, you know, Simon saw him too. So here is the fourth Calvary Limerick Corps, the good news is too good to be kept to ourselves. It would be selfish to do so. Just as the two lads went running the whole way back to Jerusalem, we want to run with the gospel to Limerick, to Ireland, to the ends of the earth. Because Jesus will save. I think we live in an interesting time, a time that's kind of made Christians scared of sharing their faith for fear of being called backwards, or bigot, or judgmental, or stupid, or intolerant, or any of those other words that you hear used. And as, as kind of the Western church, we've become paralyzed by the fear of what people will say when we talk about Jesus. But knowing the gospel should naturally change how we act. Like if you really believe something, you will act differently. We were joking earlier about fire in the place if I was to light candles down there, so I didn't. Um, but if, I, if the place was on fire, how would you expect me to behave? You probably wouldn't expect me to stand here and finish this. <laughs> You'd expect me to be going out the door. If I was to stand here and keep talking and tell you that the place was on fire, you don't, I don't think you'd believe that I believed it was on fire. So when the gospel changes us, changes our lives, changes our heart. People should be able to see that. We should want to be talking about it. Yet, we stand around silent and afraid as many people sit in a metaphorically burning building. Jesus called us to make disciples. So Calvary Limerick aims to be a disciple-making church. We want to tell people about Jesus, about salvation, about grace. And we want to see them grow in that grace and in the knowledge of God and in the power of the Holy Spirit. We want to obey Jesus 
and to make disciples. And then very lastly from our text today, I want you to notice one more thing. We've already spoken about the centrality of Jesus, but I just wonder if you've missed him, the forest, for the trees that we've been looking at as we look at these core things that we're going to be about. So just in case, the disciples are talking about Jesus and doubting Jesus. They meet Jesus. Jesus explains Jesus to them and then explains the entire Bible to them. Jesus eats with them and then they recognise who Jesus is. They run to tell others about Jesus. And if you just look down to verse 36, it says, As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. Jesus is the one who builds his church. And as we have said, we will focus on knowing God, on teaching Jesus in all of scripture, in orienting our lives around the grace of God through the death of Christ, and telling others about Jesus, and seeing them becoming part of the church of Christ. He says something too. He says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He will build his church. You are his church, Christian. He will bring you to maturity in Christ by his grace. He will build his church. He will see you through by his power. He will build his church. Let's pray. God, we just thank you so much for your word, for what it teaches us about you, for who you are, for your love for us, for this very special day where we remember your resurrection from the dead. We thank you for these things that we can learn from your word that will be core to what we do here as a church, about how you are in all of scripture, about how we are to proclaim your name to others, not in fear, Lord, but in the power that the Holy Spirit gives us. And God, as we do these things, we pray that that culture of grace will become part of this church and part of our lives. And we just thank you that you are the one that builds your church. Whether it is us as a group growing in number, or whether it is us individually as members of your church growing to maturity in Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would hold us in your grace this week and that you would help us to see a bit more of that maturity in Christ in how we interact in our day-to-day lives this week. In Jesus' name we pray.